Part One of The Brown Man's Servant by W. W. Jacobs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Lord. The Brown Man's Servant by W. W. Jacobs. Part One. Chapter One. The shop of Solomon Hyam stood in a small thoroughfare, branching off the commercial road. In its windows, unredeemed pledges of all kinds, from old-time watches to seamen's boots, appealed to all tastes and requirements. Bundles of cigars, candidly described as wonderful, were marked at absurdly low figures while silver watches endeavoured to excuse the clumsiness of their make by describing themselves as strong workmen's. The side entrance, up a narrow alley, was surmounted by the usual three brass balls, and here Mr. Hyam's clients were wont to call. They entered as optimists, smiled confidently upon Mr. Hyam's, argued, protested shrilly, and left the establishment pessimists of the most pronounced and virulent type. None of these things, however, disturbed the pawnbroker, the drunken client who endeavoured to bail out his Sunday clothes with a tram ticket, was accommodated with a chair, while the assistant went to hunt up his friends and contract for a speedy removal. The old woman, who, with a view of obtaining a higher advance than usual, poured a tale of grievous woe into the hardened ears of Mr. Hyams, found herself left to the same invaluable assistant, and, realising her failure, would at once become cheerful and take what was offered. Mr. Hyams' methods of business were quiet and unostentatious, and rumour had it that he might retire at any time and live in luxury. It was a cold, cheerless afternoon in November, as Mr. Hyams, who had occasional hazy ideas of hygiene, stood at his door taking the air. It was an atmosphere laden with soot and redolent of many blended odours, but after the fusty smell of the shop, it was almost health-giving. In the large public house opposite, with its dirty windows and faded signboards, the gas was already being lit, which should change it from its daylight dreariness to a resort of light and life. Mr. Hyams, who was never in a hurry to light up his own premises, many of his clients preferring the romantic light which comes between day and night for their visits, was about to leave the chilly air for the warmth inside when his attention was attracted by a seaman of sturdy aspect, stopping and looking in at his window. Mr. Hyams rubbed his hands softly. There was an air of comfort and prosperity about this seaman, and the pawnbroker had many small articles in his window, utterly useless to the man which he would have liked to have sold him. The man came from the window, made as though to pass, and then paused, irresolute, before the pawnbroker. You want a watch? 
said the latter genially. Come inside. Mr. Hyams went behind his counter and waited. I don't want to buy nothing, and I don't want to pawn nothing, said the sailor. What do you think of that? Mr. Hyams, who objected to riddles, especially those which seemed to be against business, eyed him unfavourably from beneath his shaggy eyebrows. We might have a little quiet talk together, said the seaman. You and me. We might do a little bit of business together, you and me. In the parlour, shall we say over a glass of something hot? Mr. Hyams hesitated. He was not averse to a little business of an illicit nature. But there rose up vividly before him the picture of another sailor who had made much the same sort of proposal and, after four glasses of rum, had merely suggested to him that he should lend him twenty pounds on the security of an I.O.U. It was long since, but the memory of it still rankled. What sort of business is it? he inquired. Business that's too big for you, perhaps, said the sailor with a lordly air. I'll try a bigger place. What's that lantern-faced swab shoving his ugly mug into the daylight for? Get off, said the pawnbroker to the assistant, who was quietly and unobtrusively making a third. Mind the shop. This gentleman and I have business in the parlour. Come this way, sir. He raised the flap of the counter and led the way to a small, untidy room at the back of the shop. A copper kettle was boiling on the fire, and the table was already laid for tea. The pawnbroker, motioning his visitor to a dingy leather armchair, went to a cupboard and produced a bottle of rum, three parts full, and a couple of glasses. Tea for me, said the seaman eyeing the bottle wistfully. The pawnbroker pricked up his ears. Nonsense, he said, with an attempt at heartiness. A jolly fellow like you don't want tea. Have some of this. Tea, confound you, said the other. When I say tea, I mean tea. The pawnbroker, repressing his collar, replaced the bottle, and, seating himself at the table, reached over for the kettle and made the tea. It was really a pleasing picture of domestic life, and would have looked well in a lantern slide at a temperance lecture. The long, gaunt Jew and the burly seaman hobnobbing over the blameless teapot. But Mr. Hyams grew restless. He was intent upon business, but the other so far as his inroads on the teapot and the eatables gave any indication, seemed to be bent only upon pleasure. Once again, the picture of the former sailor rose before Mr. Hyam's eyes, and he scowled fiercely as the seaman pushed his cup up for the fourth time. And now for a smoke, said his visitor, as he settled back in his chair. A good mind, Lord, this is comfort. It's the first bit of comfort I've had 
since I come ashore five days ago. The pawnbroker grunted and, producing a couple of black, greasy-looking cigars, gave one to his guest. They both fell to smoking, the former ill at ease, the latter with his feet spread out on the small fender, making the very utmost of his bit of comfort. Are you a man who's fond of asking questions? He said at length. No, said the pawnbroker, shutting his lips illustratively. Suppose, said the sailor, leaning forward intently, suppose a man came to you and says, there's that confounded assistant of yours peeping through the door. The pawnbroker got up, almost as exasperated as the seaman, and, after rating his assistant through the half-open door, closed it with a bang and pulled down a small blind over the glass. Suppose a man came to you, resumed the sailor, after the pawnbroker had seated himself again, and asked you for five hundred pounds for something. Have you got it? Mm, not here, said the pawnbroker suspiciously. I don't keep any money on the premises. You could get it, though, suggested the other. We'll see, said the pawnbroker. Five hundred pounds is a fortune. Five hundred pounds? Why, it takes years of work. Five hundred pounds? I don't want no blessed psalms, said the seaman abruptly. But look here. Suppose I wanted five hundred pounds for something and you wouldn't give it. How am I to know you wouldn't give information to the police if I didn't take what you offered me for it? The pawnbroker threw up his huge palms in virtuous horror. I'd mark you for it if you did said the seaman menacingly through his teeth. It'd be the worst day's work you ever did. Will you take it or leave it at my price? And if you won't give it, leave me to go as I came. I will, said the pawnbroker solemnly. The seaman laid his cigar in the tray, where it expired in a little puddle of tea, and, undoing his coat, cautiously took from his waist a canvas belt. In a hesitating fashion, he dangled the belt in his hands, looking from the Jew to the door, and from the door back to the Jew again. Then from a pocket in the belt, he took something wrapped in a small piece of dirty flannel, and, unrolling it, deposited on the table a huge diamond, whose smouldering fires flashed back in many colours the light from the gas. The Jew with an exclamation, reached forward to handle it, but the sailor thrust him back. Hands off, he said grimly. None of your ringing the changes on me. He tipped it over with his fingernail on the table from side to side. The other, with his head bent down, closely inspecting it. Then, as a great indulgence, he laid it on the Jew's open palm for a few seconds. Five hundred pounds, he said, taking it in his own hands again. The pawnbroker laughed. It was a laugh which he kept for business purposes and would have formed a valuable addition to the goodwill of the shop. I'll give you fifty, 
he said, after he had regained his composure. The seaman replaced the gem in its wrapper again. Well, I'll give you seventy and risk whether I lose over it, continued the pawnbroker. Five hundred's my price, said the seaman calmly, as he placed the belt about his waist and began to buckle it up. Seventy-five, said the pawnbroker persuasively. Look here, said the seaman, regarding him sternly. You drop it. I'm not going to aggle with you. I'm not going to aggle with any man. I ain't no judge of diamonds, but I've had cause to know as this is something special. See here. He rolled back the coat sleeve from his brawny arm and revealed a long, newly healed scar. I risked my life for that stone, he said slowly. I value my life at five hundred pounds. It's likely worth more than as many thousands, and you know it. However, good night to you, mate. How much for the tea? He put his hand contemptuously in his trouser pocket and pulled out some small change. There's the risk of getting rid of the stone, said the pawnbroker, pushing aside the proffered coin. Where did it come from? Has it got a history? Not in Europe, it ain't, said the seaman. So far as I know, you and me and one other are the only white men as know of it. That's all I'm going to tell you. Do you mind waiting while I go and fetch a friend of mine to see it? Enquired the pawnbroker. You needn't be afraid, he added hastily. He's a respectable man and as close as the grave. I'm not afraid, said the seaman quietly. But no larks, mind. I'm not a nice man to play them on. I'm pretty strong, and I've got something else besides. He settled himself in the armchair again, and, accepting another cigar, watched his host as he took his hat from the sideboard. I'll be back as soon as I can, said the latter somewhat anxiously. You won't go before I come. Not me, said the seaman bluntly. When I say a thing, I stick to it. I don't haggle and haggle and... He paused a moment for a word. An haggle, he concluded. Left to himself, he smoked on contentedly, blandly undisturbed by the fact that the assistant looked in at the door occasionally to see that things were all right. It was quite a new departure for Mr Hyams to leave his parlour to a stranger, and the assistant felt a sense of responsibility so great that it was a positive relief to him when his master returned, accompanied by another man. This is my friend, said Mr Hyams, as they entered the parlour and closed the door. You might let him see the stone. The seaman took off his belt again, and placing the diamond in his hand, held it before the stranger, who, making no attempt to take it, turned it over with his finger and examined it critically. Are you going to see again just yet? He inquired softly. Thursday night, said the seaman. Five hundred is my price. Perhaps he told you I'm not going to haggle. Just so, just so, 
said the other quietly. It's worth five hundred. Spoke like a man, said the seaman warmly. I like to deal with a man who knows his own mind, said the stranger. It saves trouble, but if we buy it for that amount, you must do one thing for us. Keep quiet, and don't touch a drop of liquor until you sail, and not a word to anybody. You needn't be afraid of the liquor, said the sailor grimly. I shan't touch that for our own sake. He's a teetotaler, explained the pawnbroker. He's not, said the seaman indignantly. Why won't you drink then? asked the other man. Fancy, said the seaman dryly and closed his mouth. Without another word, the stranger turned to the pawnbroker, who, taking a pocketbook from his coat, counted out the amount in notes. These, after the sailor had examined them in every possible manner, he rolled up and put in his pocket. Then, without a word, he took out the diamond again and laid it silently on the table. Mr. Hyams, his fingers trembling with eagerness, took it up and examined it delightedly. You've got it a bargain, said the seaman. Good night, gentlemen. I hope for your sakes nobody will know I've parted with it. Keep your eyes open and trust nobody. When you see black, smell mischief. I'm glad to get rid of it. He threw his head back and, expanding his chest as though he already breathed more freely, nodded to both men and, walking through the shop, passed out into the street and disappeared. Long after he had gone, the pawnbroker and his friend, Levi, sat with the door locked and the diamond before them, eagerly inspecting it. It's a great risk, said the pawnbroker. A stone like that generally makes some noise. Anything good is risky, said the other somewhat contemptuously. You don't expect to get a windfall like that without any drawback, do you? He took the stone in his hand again and eyed it lovingly. It's from the east somewhere, he said quietly. It's badly cut, but it's a diamond of diamonds, a king of gems. I don't want any trouble with the police, said the pawnbroker as he took it from him. You're talking now as though you've just made a small advance on a stolen overcoat, said his friend impatiently. A risk like that, and you have done it before now, is a foolish one to run. The game is not worth the candle. But this? Why, it warms one's blood to look at it. Well, I'll leave it with you, said the pawnbroker. If you do well with it, I ought not to want to work any more. The other placed it in an inside pocket while the owner watched him anxiously. Don't let any accident happen to you tonight, Levi he said nervously. Thanks for your concern, said Levi, grimacing. I shall probably be careful for my own sake. He buttoned up his coat and, drinking a glass of hot whisky, went out whistling. He had just reached the door 
when the pawnbroker called him back. If you like to take a cab, Levi, he said in a low voice so that his assistant should not hear, I'll pay for it. I'll take an omnibus, said Levi, smiling quietly. You're getting extravagant, Hyams. Besides, fancy the humour of sitting next to a pickpocket with this on me. He waved a cheery farewell, and the pawnbroker, watching him from the door, scowled angrily as he saw his light-hearted friend hail an omnibus at the corner and board it. Then he went back to the shop and his everyday business of making advances on flat irons and other realisable assets of the neighbourhood. At ten o'clock, he closed for the night, the assistant hurriedly pulling down the shutters that his time for recreation might not be unduly curtailed. He slept off the premises, and the pawnbroker, after his departure, made a slight supper and sat revolving the affairs of the day over another of his black cigars until nearly midnight. Then, well contented with himself, he went up the bare, dirty stairs to his room and went to bed, and, despite the excitement of the evening, was soon in a loud slumber, from which he was aroused by a distant and sustained knocking. Chapter 2 At first, the noise mingled with his dreams and helped to form them. He was down a mine, and grimy workers with strong picks were knocking diamonds from the walls, diamonds so large that he became despondent at the comparative smallness of his own. Then he awoke suddenly and sat up with a start, rubbing his eyes. The din was infernal to a man who liked to do a quiet business in an unobtrusive way. It was a knocking which he usually associated with the police, and it came from his side door, with a sense of evil strong upon him. The Jew sprang from his bed and, slipping the catch, noiselessly opened the window and thrust his head out. In the light of a lamp which projected from the brick wall at the other end of the alley, he saw a figure below. Halawa said the Jew harshly. His voice was drowned in the noise. What do you want? he yelled. Hello there. What do you want, I say? The knocking ceased, and the figure, stepping back a little, looked up at the window. Come down and open the door, said a voice which the pawnbroker recognised as the sailor's. Go away, he said in a low, stern voice. Do you want to rouse the neighbourhood? Come down and let me in, said the other. It's for your own good. You're a dead man if you don't. Impressed by his manner, the Jew, after bidding him shortly not to make any more noise, lit his candle and, dressing hurriedly, took the light in his hand and went grumbling downstairs into the shop. Now, what do you want? he said through the door. Let me in and I'll tell you, said the other, or I'll ball it through the keel, if you like. The Jew, 
placing the candle on the counter, drew back the heavy bolts and cautiously opened the door. The seaman stepped in, and as the other closed the door, vaulted onto the counter and sat there with his legs dangling. That's right, he said, nodding approvingly in the direction of the Jew's right hand. I hope you knows how to use it. What do you want? demanded the other irritably, putting his hand behind him. What time of night do you call this for turning respectable men out of their beds? I didn't come for the pleasure of seeing your pretty face again, you can bet, said the seaman carelessly. It's good nature what's brought me here. Huh? What have you done with that diamond? That's my business, said the other. What do you want? I told you I sailed in five days, said the seaman. Well, I got another ship this evening instead, and I sail at 6am. Things are getting just a bit too thick for me, and I thought, out of pure good nature, I'd step round and put you on your guard. Why didn't you do so at first? said the Jew, eyeing him suspiciously. Well, I didn't want to spoil a bargain, said the seaman carelessly. Maybe you wouldn't have bought the stone if I'd told you. Mind that thing don't go off. I don't want to rob you. Point it the other way. There was four of us in that deal, he continued, after the other had complied with his request. Me and Jack Ball and Nosy Wheeler and a Burmese chap. The last I see of Jack Ball, he was quiet and peaceful with a knife sticking in his chest. If I hadn't been a very careful man, I'd have had one sticking in mine. If you ain't a very careful man and do what I tell you, you'll have one sticking in yours. Speak a little more plainly, said the Jew. Come into the parlour. I don't want the police to see a light in the shop. We stole it, said the seaman, as he followed the other into the little back parlour. The four of us from... I don't want to know anything about that, interrupted the other hastily. The sailor grinned approvingly and continued. Then me and Jack, being stronger than them, we took it from them too, but they got level with poor Jack. I shipped before the mast on a bark, and they came over by steamer and waited for me. Well, you're not afraid of them, said the Jew interrogatively. Besides, a word to the police, telling them, all about the diamond, said the seaman. Oh, yeah. Well, you can do that now if you feel so inclined. They know all about that, bless you. And if they were had, they'd blab about the diamond. Have they been dogging you? inquired the pawnbroker. Dogging me, said the seaman. Dogging's no word for it. Where I've been, they've been my shadders. They want to hurt me, but they're careful about being hurt themselves. That's where I have the pull of them. They want the stone back first and revenge afterwards. So I thought I'd put you on your guard, for they pretty well guess who's got the thing now. You'll know Wheeler by his nose, which is broken. 
I'm not afraid of them, said the Jew, but thank you for telling me. Did they follow you here? They're outside, I've no doubt, said the other. But they come along like human cats. Leastways, the Burma chap does. You want eyes in the back of your head for them, almost. The Burmese is an old man and soft as velvet. And Jack Ball, just afore he died, was going to tell me something about him. I don't know what it was, but poor Jack, he was a superstitious sort of chap. And I know it was something horrible. He was as brave as a lion was Jack. But he was afraid of that little shriveled up Burmese. They'll follow me to the ship tonight. If they'll only come close enough and there's nobody nigh, I'll do Jack a good turn. Stay here till the morning, said the Jew. The seaman shook his head. I don't want to miss my ship said he. But remember what I've told you, and mind, they're villains, both of them. And if you're not very careful, they'll have you sooner or later. Good night. He buttoned up his coat and leading the way to the door, followed by the Jew with the candle, opened it noiselessly and peered carefully out right and left. The alley was empty. Take this said the Jew, proffering his pistol. I've got one, said the seaman. Good night. He strode boldly up the alley, his footsteps sounding loudly in the silence of the night. The Jew watched him to the corner and then, closing the door, secured it with extra care and went back to his bedroom, where he lay meditating upon the warning which had just been given to him until he fell asleep. Before going downstairs next morning, he placed the revolver in his pocket. Not necessarily for use, but as a demonstration of the lengths to which he was prepared to go. His manner with two or three inoffensive gentlemen of colour was also somewhat strained. Especially was this the case with a worthy Lascar, who, knowing no English, gesticulated cheerfully in front of him with a long dagger which he wanted to pawn. The morning passed without anything happening and it was nearly dinner time before anything occurred to justify the sailor's warning. Then, happening to glance at the window, he saw between the articles which were hanging there a villainous face, the principal feature of which being strangely bent at once recalled the warning of the sailor. As he looked, the face disappeared, and a moment later, its owner, after furtively looking in at the side door, entered quietly. Morning, boss, said he. The pawnbroker nodded and waited. I want to have a little talk with you, boss, said the man, after waiting for him to speak. All right, go on, said the other. What about him, said the man, indicating the assistant with a nod. Well, what about him, inquired the Jew. What I've got to say is private, said the man. The Jew 
raised his eyebrows. You can go in and get your dinner, Bob, he said. Now, what do you want? he continued. Hurry up, because I'm busy. I come from a pal of mine, said the man, speaking in a low voice. Him what was here last night. He couldn't come himself, so he sent me. He wants it back. Wants what back? asked the Jew. The diamond, said the other. Diamond? What on earth are you talking about? demanded the pawnbroker. You needn't try to come it on me, said the other fiercely. We want that diamond back, and, mind you, we'll have it. You clear out, said the Jew. I don't allow people to come threatening me. Out you go. We'll do more than threaten you, said the man, the veins in his forehead swelling with rage. You've got that diamond. You got it for five hundred pound. We'll give you that back for it, and you may think yourself lucky to get it. You've been drinking, said the Jew, or somebody's been fooling you. Look here, said the man with a snarl. Drop it. I'm dealing fair and square by you. I don't want to hurt a hair of your head. I'm a peaceable man, but I want my own. And what's more, I can get it. I've got the shell, and I can get the colonel. Do you know what I mean by that? I don't know, and I don't care, said the Jew. He moved off a little way, and, taking some tarnished spoons from a box, began to rub them with a piece of leather. I dare say you can take a hint as well as anybody else, said the other. Have you seen that before? He threw something on the counter, and the Jew started, despite himself, as he glanced up. It was the sailor's belt. That's a hint, said the man with a leer, and a very fair one. The Jew looked at him steadily, and saw that he was white and nervous. His whole aspect, that of a man who was running a great risk for a great stake. I suppose, he said at length, speaking very slowly, that you want me to understand that you have murdered the owner of this? Understand what you like, said the other with sullen ferocity. Will you let us have that back again? No, said the Jew explosively. I have no fear of a dog like you. If it was worth the trouble, I'd send for the police and hand you over to them. Call them, said the other. Do. I'll wait. But mark my words, if you don't give us the stone back, you're a dead man. I've got a pal. What of that diamond belongs to? He's from the east and a bad man to cross. He's only got to wish it, and you're a dead man, without his raising a finger at you. I've come here to do you a good turn. If he comes here, it's all up with you. Well, 
you go back to him, jeered the Jew. A clever man like that couldn't get the diamond without going near it, seemingly. You're wasting your time here, and it's a pity. You must have got a lot of friends. Well, I've warned you, said the other. You'll have one more warning. If you won't be wise, you must keep the diamond, but it won't be much good to you. It's a good stone, but speaking for myself, I'd sooner be alive without it than dead with it. He gave the Jew a menacing glance and departed, and the assistant, having by this time finished his dinner, the pawnbroker went to his own with an appetite by no means improved by his late interview. End of part one of The Brown Man's Servant by W. W. Jacobs